Hello and welcome to Vaccine 15, a weekly mini-series covering key topics about vaccines in 15 minutes or less, hosted by Biopod here at the University of Edinburgh. Today's episode is all about discovery, specifically how to develop that eureka moment from an idea into a functioning vaccine. To discuss this, we have Dr. Christine Tate Burkhardt, an assistant professor from the Department of Infection and Immunity at Roslyn Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tate Burkhardt. Hi, good afternoon or morning, whenever you're listening to this. <laughs> it's a lovely grey morning here in Scotland today. So, Eureka, how to develop a vaccine. Where do you start? Well, different ways to start on a vaccine. There are very simple ways of developing vaccines, which sometimes works and which is very often used in veterinary immunology, which is simply to take the pathogen, amplify it, kill it and put it back into a human or an animal. And that is pretty much how the initial Chinese vaccines for coronavirus actually work. And obviously, there's a lot of work that usually goes into the formulation, which means stabilizers and making sure that the vaccine doesn't degrade, ideally at fridge temperature, and then you give it to someone. That is the very crude and simple way. The more complicated way, and I I should say for many viruses, this method doesn't really work because viruses are not stupid. They put up an outer shell which is often glycosylation. So they cover themselves in sugars, which makes them very difficult for our immune system to detect them. And only once they're processed properly by our cells, we can get some antigens discovered, but they might still not work on the full virus particle that is shielded in those sugar covers. But when we look at coronavirus, we actually have a big advantage. Coronaviruses, as the name says, have that crown or that corona of spike proteins. And those spike proteins are not only big and bulky, they're also hard to disguise. And they're definitely the one major thing that triggers our immune system. So you, how do you know which pathogen to choose? I guess it can be obvious in hindsight. So this is code a lot of people probably need a vaccine right now. Where do you start? Well, I think for a lot of it, we still start with cost postulates. So we see we see something happening. And we start to figure out what is the common denominator in everyone getting sick. And we start to investigate. Now, the last one of cost postulates that once we put a disease causing pathogen back into an animal or a human, obviously we we would never do that with humans, but it happens naturally through transmission. It's not always assumed anymore that that has to cause disease because not everyone develops disease from a pathogen and it's not always the right way of infection. But with coronavirus here, we had the lack of, well, not the lack of numbers, the sad story of numbers on our side. Uh, In China, we kept finding people with a coronavirus. Uh, Coronaviruses, as I mentioned, are very easy to detect because they have a very distinct shape and form in an electron microscope. So a very big magnification microscope, you can actually spot them like nothing else and they get shed uh, very easily through our stool as well so that is a good place to look and we tend to find them very often obviously also then in the respiratory tracts and it's usually then a very clear cut the more people with disease you find with that virus allows you to pretty certainly say that is disease causing pathogen 
Obviously, now we also have animal models, um, or we already had animal models from SARS coronavirus 1 that were actually suitable for SARS coronavirus 2. And those mice and also hamsters and some ferrets do actually develop disease. So we can actually prove that this virus causes the respiratory disease that we expect to. Okay, excellent. Uh, that takes us nicely into our next point as well, actually. So you mentioned having a big electron microscope. What do you need to develop a vaccine? Like what equipment and what training would you need? I think it's it's like everything in science is the collaboration of different people coming together. You need a lot of cell culture based training and, and virology training and eventually immunology training and chemical formulation training. But vaccines that we haven't discussed yet are obviously the more sophisticated that we're now seeing the mRNA vaccines and the virus vectored vaccines such as AstraZeneca and Janssen or Johnson Johnson. What happens there is obviously, as I mentioned, spike is the high immunogen in that uh, in the virus. And interestingly, over the past 10 years, there have actually been interesting developments in just looking at spike and looking at how it behaves and doing crystal structures. And one of the discoveries in actually measuring those crystal structures has actually helped us develop our vaccines because for both Moderna and Pfizer, the spike protein is presented as a whole. Uh, so it's about 2,000 amino acid chains. So it's very big. We actually managed to put in the entire code for that 2,000 amino acid protein but especially for the mRNA vaccines, the pharmaceutical companies have chosen to use a mutation that was used for crystallizing the protein in its pre-fusion state. Single mutation, actually single protein letter change to actually stabilize it and present it as you would see it on the surface of a virus. And that seems to have truly helped to get a very good immune response. And to develop these vaccines, you need structural biologists or chemists that actually originally already discovered Spike who have done that groundwork. Then you need people in molecular biology for the Pfizer Moderna vaccines to actually develop the mRNA blueprint to show to our body. On the other hand, you need virologists to package and actually make those vectors, vector particles for AstraZeneca or Janssen-Janssen. And eventually, you also need, obviously, the immunologists that then look at how can we either add adjuvants to this to trigger the right parts of the immune system, how can we increase the immune response to this uh, vaccine, and eventually, obviously, chemists and biochemists to make that formulation stable ideally fridge temperature or even better room temperature and that's obviously one of the big discussions that we're still having that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines both require minus 80 or minus 20 degrees or minus 70 and minus 20 degrees storage but we simply didn't have the time to tweak the formulation to keep these vaccines stable at fridge temperature. Well it's pretty amazing that we a got these vaccines so quickly anyway and B, just from everything you described, uh, how many different ways you can get involved and in, if you're interested in developing a vaccine or training to be in this field. And it's I think the phrase is what science is a village. That's the phrase. Everyone has their part. It's less about the individual, more about the team working together. It can be sometimes harder to see on the outside. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, collaborations um, are also continuously happening throughout all of this and they're really bringing us forward much faster. And we have seen, even just in combating all of this, there have been physicists, uh, engineers involved in developing the ways of how we can kill the virus in the first instance, how we can make this safe for all the places where we have lots of exposures, such as ambulances, public places, hospitals. How can you clean them down eventually and make sure that the virus is cleaned to indeed the, the very important things such as vaccine development, and the next part, which is also very important, obviously, which is the drug development. We've obviously seen the ICU drugs, which have made drives and really have driven down the mortality of this virus. The problem is still, though, that we know how to treat severely ill patients, but we still are working on those drugs that treat people who are just having the virus and are not in hospital yet, because obviously that's what we would like to do, stop people from going to hospital. So you've mentioned one of the key markers of like how KTEL vaccine is effective. So you've chosen your pathogen, you've chosen your team, you've got all these chemists, physicists, biologists, immunologists, and you've made something, but how do you know it works? You go through an awful lot of testing in different models initially, and you work your way up to humans. So you start usually on mice and you start to look at do they actually react to this compound that we're giving them but at the same time you also want to start looking at is this toxic in any way do these animals react in any unusual way do they have side effects that look very severe and you work your way up now for vaccines especially the vaccines that we're looking at at the moment a lot of this groundwork has been done uh, in terms of having different versions of those vaccines or delivery systems. So the adenovirus delivery system has been tried and tested before. And similarly, the mRNA drugs have been tested mostly either as cancer vaccines or as gene therapy. So if someone has a genetic disease to deliver a protein that functions correctly to replace a protein that is not functioning correctly. So a lot of the toxicity work was there which is a very good thing because that means you can skip certain steps in the toxicity studies and you can work your way up to humans uh, much quicker. So first you have the tests in the lab, or you have to test on the animals. What testing do you need to show that it works for humans? So you need to do efficacy studies and safety studies. Those are healthy, yeah, so phase one, healthy adults finding out about major side effects um, and also finding out about does the body react? What is their antibody response? But what is also their cellular immune response? Which cell types get triggered by the vaccines? And basically that tells us not only what types of immune responses we make, but it also starts to indicate whether we're starting to build memory. And depending on us building memory, especially in the T cells, it means we're more adaptable to slight versions and variants of that pathogen. That is phase one. And then in phase two, you go into looking at more about side effects and again, looking at how well treatment works. And then you go into larger hundreds of thousands of people trials to see um, how good it works in the real world. Uh, so does it really prevent disease? 
in those hundreds of thousands of people. Now, what has happened with a lot of the coronavirus vaccines is that phases two and three were actually combined because of the urgency of needing treatment and the preliminary work on knowing that these vectors shouldn't be toxic and shouldn't be massively dangerous to humans and seeing both efficacy and safety at the same time. But that really only works if we have pre-existing data on the general safety. Otherwise, that is never permitted. It is sometimes permitted, again, if there is a true urgency. So we have seen that again in Ebola, in the Ebola outbreaks in Western Africa a few years back. And actually, there are still ongoing where, for humanitarian reasons, it was safer to trial a vaccine that may not work because the consequence of Ebola is very likely death. So the odds are stacked in your favour to try a vaccine, even though it may or may not work and it may have side effects. Okay. so my final question now from this is how is COVID-19 vaccine being different? And do you think this has changed vaccine development for the future? Well, interestingly, this is a discussion that we have had since the MERS outbreak in 2012-2013. And again, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, coronavirus is still spreading in the Middle East. Um, So we still have reoccurring cases. It's a clear stenosis, it comes from camels, and it has a severe consequence of disease in humans because about 30% of people who get the virus actually die from it. That raised the second alarm bell. So after the first SARS epidemics happened in 2002, 2003, actually 2004 as well, you then come into the 2010s, you have the next zoonotic coronavirus. And after that, a lot of initiatives were formed to do exactly what we've seen now in terms of vaccines, develop building block vaccines. So you have Building block one is a vector to deliver your antigen. So the one thing that your immune system needs to react to. That can be a vector. It can be the mRNA lipid environment. Or indeed, it can be the protein studs um, or the nanoparticles that we see, for instance, in the Novavax protein vaccine, which just uses a produced spike protein studded onto a little nanoparticle. After that, you can test the safety of the vector and then you only need to slot in your antigen and then you only have to go through the testing of those antigens. And that is exactly what has happened and what has sped up the vaccine development in this case. We knew we had safety data of the first big building block and then we just had to test what the antigen does, how safe it is to add that antigen. But what has sped us up more than anything is the sheer focus and the sheer amount of money and time that were spent on developing the the proteins, the vaccines, uh, speeding up production. And one of the things that was the biggest stumbling block and still is the biggest stumbling block is the production facilities. And that is why the vaccine rollout, now that we have all these vaccines, still takes so long. Whilst we have lots of factories that can produce egg-based vaccines for flu, we didn't have the production facilities that worked at the standards that we wanted them to work for a human drug, and they had to be built. Around the globe, we've seen lots of expansions and new factories being built. Uh, Excellent. Uh, That actually leads fantastically into our next episode, so thank you very much. So thank you for your time, Dr. Dave Burkhardt.
for a fantastic and comprehensive insight into developing a vaccine. Thank you as well, dear listeners, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget to look us up on Twitter at Biopod Edinburgh and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get them. Bye.